And then I thought I would like to go to Australia. I read all about Qantas in the aviation books, so I wrote to Hudson Fish and asked him if he would like a very good pilot. And he wrote back uh, <clears throat> the stereotyped letter, which took some months to come, of course, in those days, saying that <clears throat> he'd received my letter, but unfortunately they had no vacancies at the moment, but they made a notice of my name in case it should be in future. So I decided, well, I wouldn't be going to Australia. I would think about going somewhere else. But I hadn't thought for more than about a week before I got a, a, a telegram from de Havilland's asking me whether I was still interested in going to Australia. So I telephoned them back and said yes. So they said, would I come to Stag Lane, their headquarters, for an interview? So with uh, Westland's uh, uh, agreement, I borrowed one of their widgeons and flew to Stag Lane, where I had my interview with uh, people there, who some of them I knew anyhow. So <clears throat> and they said they had a cable from Hudson Fish saying they urgently wanted me if I, if I was satisfactory, and they had to try me out. So they gave me a tryout on one of their aeroplanes, and that was that, and I went straight away to uh, Australia. Now, can I ask you, first of all, go back to the uh, time with Westlands, uh, you say that you were um, uh, pushing the, the widgeon. Uh, what was the widgeon like? The widgeon, uh, well, it, it was a high-winged uh, high monoplane, uh, competitive with the, with the de Havilland Moth. Uh, but it was, uh, I say, it was a high-winged monoplane. And, and uh, I don't know that there was any it was a, a little bit faster i think than the moth but it had a, a very fine viewing uh, possibility you sat there with the wing up above you you could see marvelous vision all round it was a very nice aeroplane uh, the original one was a very pretty one it it, it was um, diamond shaped wings uh, the other, the, the production ones had straight wings. I remember the diamond-shaped wing was the only one, and eventually uh, it was bought by a doctor at Canterbury, who was a keen amateur pilot. I can't recollect his name at the moment, but I know that I flew the, the, this beautiful little diamond air, aircraft up to Canterbury uh, to deliver it to him. We ran into it, it. It was must have been what was winter because approaching London, I ran into blinding snowstorms, and I <laughs> was a bit bushed. And I managed to find Brooklands, so I landed at Brooklands and waited till the next day. And uh, I still had to go through a couple of uh, snow uh, storms, which wasn't very pleasant because you had no blind-flying instrument, but you had to go poking into it and come out the other end, but I was lucky and, and delivered this very nice airplane. The, uh, were you actually part of the sales team, or were you on the technical side? No, I was just uh, an odd man. They, uh, which they were very good. They let me fly one of their airplanes by an arrangement. I was very keen. I was in Yeovil, actually, working in Yeovil, and I, they were, allowed me to fly one of their aircraft and the test pilot then was Louis Paget who was very good to me and uh, when there were all these little things going out to deliver an aeroplane or to go to a flying club they uh, got me to do it sometimes we all three of us would go uh, Rod uh, Roderick Hill was it the 
pterodactyl designer. He would fly one. We'd we'd arrive in a little formation, and uh, uh, it, it was ever very good to me indeed. And the uh, test you did for Qantas, <laughs> what did that comprise? I don't quite like to admit it because they said, well, come out in one of their DH-9s. And so we took off and it was a lovely clear day and we had a very pleasant flight all around London looking, we could see 40 miles or more away. And uh, really it was just a, a, a joy flight and came down and, and the they were satisfied that I could fly it. Anyhow, they knew that I could fly an aeroplane. I'd been flying at Bristol's and what have you. And uh, I don't think it, it was really a, a check-up to see what sort of bloke I was. As a matter of fact, I found one of the instructors at Astag Lane was one of my old squadron men, old Allison. <laughs> and uh, it was really more... Well, it wasn't... More, it wasn't a formality. They had to had to check me because they only had my word what I'd done. So I hopped on the bird. They said, "Well, could I come immediately?" So uh, I went out on this big ship, this good ship, Jarvis Bay, which became an absolute hero ship in the in the last war. What year was this when you joined Qantas? Nineteen twenty-eight. Then I. Uh, that took me as far as Adelaide, where there was a, a strike, as usual. So I left the ship and caught the train to Melbourne. <laughs> and then, uh, having made my number with the Department of Civil Aviation there and given another joy flight all around Melbourne, for, so, so I, they said, well, I hadn't flown for two months, I think, so I was entitled to a, a, a little sort of familiar, familiarization flight. So I had a very nice flight around Melbourne. Then I got in the, into the train and went by train all the way from Melbourne to Sydney to Toowoomba outside of Brisbane and out to Charleville in the west. I think it took me three and a half days in that train and I was browned off. That was the end of the Qantas route in those days. And From there I, I flew up to Charleville, to uh, Longreach and uh, with Qantas. Were you put into uh, operation straight away? Well, I was giving, uh, taken over the route which we were flown, uh, flying in those days by another pilot, Eric Donaldson, took me over and showed me where the places were and, and came back and uh, that was that. Now, what aircraft were you flying? We were flying a DH-50, uh, which, well, if you don't know it, it, it was a, a, a proper civil version of the DH-9, I suppose, it had a, a, a proper cabin for four people with a lid which you lifted up to get in between the wings. One, one, one of the civil aircraft which the Havilands had produced, uh, I think using all the DH-9 wings, but they built a proper little fuselage with a cabin in it. And so the now, what recollections have you of those uh, early <laughs> days with uh, Qantas, the sort of passengers you carried, the flying conditions you met? Well, passengers varied enormously because, uh, well, it was the only way, uh, you know, as Qantas started to, to join up the three railway lines which came from the coast out west, 400 miles out, and Qantas joined up the uh, ends of those aero uh, lines. And so it was the natural method of, of travel for anybody, whether he was a station hand or, or, or a manager. So we had all sorts of uh, passengers, including prime ministers and everybody else, although I, I didn't carry a prime minister, but, but I've carried various people. Then the routes were extended out to Camerwell on the border with uh, 
of the Northern Territory and up to Normanton on the uh, northeast coast. Uh, well, we had uh, any, all types of people. Uh, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't give a list of how many because they were everybody. <laughs> uh, how about the other Qantas staff with whom you were working? Uh, was it a big family then? It was a family, not very big. I, as far as I recollect, the total number of employees, including the old night watchman, was 25 people. There were uh, the manager, Hudson Fish, and the chief engineer, Arthur Baird, pilots of Lester Brain, Skip Moody, Eric Donaldson, Arthur Affleck, and myself. The... Both Hudson Fish and Arthur Baird were reserve pilots if there was more than we wanted or charter trips which we couldn't sort of ruin. They, they came in and did the extra. So it was a maximum that we had seven pilots, five regular pilots and two uh, special ones. Then the engineers. It must have been that takes seven. Uh, the night. Porter eight, night watchman at the airport, at the air, at the aerodrome eight. So the rest must have been seventeen, I think, seventeen engineers of various uh, uh, carpenters. We uh, Qantas then built under license their own DH fifties. We built, I think, five DH fifty aircraft there, um, which was a very special thing. Uh, was um, Sir Fergus McMaster on the scene at that time? Yes, Sir Fergus was the chairman. <clears throat> he uh, lived on his property, Moscow, which is halfway, uh, halfway between Longreach and the next landing place, North Winton. Total distance of, I suppose, Moscow is about 55 miles north of Longreach. He had uh, made a, uh, a landing ground there, and we... Oh, Landed or two drops, uh, Fergus as he was then, so Fergus later, but we would land there quite often to pick him up or, or, or drop him after his many uh, visits to the south on these pro problems. Now you've talked of uh, Fergus McMaster. How about their engineer, Arthur Baird? Uh, how did you get on with him? Arthur was one of the most solid men that ever was. He didn't waste words. He just talked horse sense the whole time, and and uh, and, and and that was that. Uh, I could <coughs> say, re uh, repeat so many things about him, but I'll tell you just one. Flying in the open cockpits there, in the in the hot weather in the in Western Queensland, I got very badly sunburnt on my face. And eventually, my nose really had a, began to split all down the middle from it. And the doctor in Charleville, where I was the end of my run in those days, Dr. Shannessy, did produce every idea he could. I bought goggles with masks and all sorts of things, but it didn't <clears throat> do any good. And old Shannessy eventually said, well, you can only think of one thing, gold beater's skin. So I had to get Goldbeater's skin, and before I started the day's run, I cut off a piece of Goldbeater's skin and stuck it over my nose, and then at the end of the trip, I would take it off. 
This went on for some time, and in Cloncurry, which was one of our main northern uh, uh, maintenance place, engineer was Dudley Wright. And I was talking to Dudley one day, and I said, well, why couldn't we get a, a canopy like a child's perambulator thing to pull over my head so I wouldn't get the sun on my nose? So Dudley said, well, he would get down to it, and he made one, which used to pull up over the top, and I had a strap to pull it down, and just inside uh, just inside the uh, uh, the windscreen in the front, so that it didn't get blown off. <clears throat> so I flew back to Longreach with this uh, thing. Arthur Baird came out as usual, he's very sort of, you know, quiet look, and he had one look, and he said, what the hell's that? <laughs> I said, that's a, a canopy to keep my nose from being sunburnt. He said, what a bloody awful thing to put on an aeroplane. I said, well, it's you, you try it out. Arthur tried it out about twice, and then every aeroplane was fitted with a, a, a sunburn canopy to keep it off. <laughs> uh, what is gold-beater skin? Gold bitter skin, it's thing they beat out to it. It's like a fine bit of the finest cellophane stuff you get nowadays, which they put on, on jewellery to make it gold. I, I, I really can't tell you more, more about it than that. Mm. But it's a very, the thinnest thing you could possibly think of of gold. Now, Arthur Baird was, uh, had the reputation of being very critical about um, new pilots and, and, and uh, also being rather hard to get to know. Um, did you find it difficult to uh, get to know him? No, I didn't, actually. <coughs> um, uh, as I've said, he was a man of a few words. He, he uh, accepted me. I don't know what his thoughts were about me, but he was... Most cooperative, as far as I was concerned, I I, I, I was, I can't remember. I became very, very friendly with Arthur Baird. Uh, in the end, he always called me Tepo, and uh, oh, later on, we, we've gone to wrestling matches together and played golf together, and I suppose he was hard, if you like, difficult to get to know, because he didn't fall over everybody on first acquaintance. He always took his time to add people up. Now, I don't know, no idea how long he took to add me up, <laughs> but uh, I, 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 he was very uh, friendly to me from the, as far as I remember from the start. I, and I understand yeah. he was extremely proud of his aircraft and, and very wary if anyone did any damage to them. Well, he was. I... I, I Sometimes one couldn't help damaging an aircraft. <clears throat> I don't think Arthur held anything against anybody on that account. If anybody had damaged one through stupidity, which I can't remember anything like that happening, I've, no, I've never heard Arthur say a, a bad word about anybody who had a... I would say the only the really big accidents, the only the only two big accidents Qantas ever had in those days were were fatal accidents. One before I uh, was, was, was joined them at Tambo, and when they <clears throat> they were killed, and the other one was outside of uh, Wintham when they were all killed. But I'd never heard Arthur say one word about 
or anybody or anything like that. He, were you aware of being involved in what was one of the world's foremost pioneer airlines at that time? No idea, whatever. Uh, it was uh, flying out in the, as I said, the Hudson Fish when I applied for the job that I'd been flying in the frontier, northwest frontier province without maps and over rough country and what have you, and therefore I thought that I would be able to do what he wanted in, in his uh, part of the world, and, and that was that. I had no thought of Qantas. I don't any of us had ever had any idea of Qantas getting really bigger until the time came when uh, we, uh, this through service from England was, was mooted and Imperial Airways came out and, and decided after all, as you know, through all the attempts by other people to, to become the Australian end operator, uh, it was uh, Imperial Airways agreed to Qantas being their joint uh, operator. Until that time, I, I don't think we, well, I, uh, we never thought of anything further, more than internal, in, inside of Australia. Why do you think Qantas did succeed where the other airlines <clears throat> bidding for the international route failed? That is very well written in the, uh, the Hudson Fish's history. Uh, the other people were, I suppose one might say, rather too grabbing. But the what I think is that was, was a made a, a lot of things in favour of Qantas was that in all the company's operations. Qantas had never put over one thing if they said that it would cost 11.3 farthings. It had come to the state when the government accepted that 11.3 farthings was the cost and they were not being uh, uh, pushed up into it. They were being, honestly, was the thing which was from Sir Fergus and Hudson Fish. I mean, both of them, they were absolutely, completely honest in everything they had put up and had it had been proved right, and therefore when this big thing came up, I I wouldn't know whether uh, whether that, uh, how, how much that was taken in, into consideration at all, but the thing was that they put up the best, the best proposition, and uh, but nothing economical. But nothing is ever perfect. Um, were there any points about the Qantas operation uh, about which you uh, were critical. Uh, for instance, were they always correct in their choice of aircraft, as you saw it? Yes, I, 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 there was there was no no, no, uh, no better aircraft for the job which I knew of, which which, which we could have bought. Uh, we think that we were so close to the Havilands that whatever type of whatever we wanted, the Havilands produced, and they produced the DH eighty six for this overseas uh, work. On our, our request, we told them what what was required, and they did it. And I don't think that there was ever any question of uh, wanting different aircraft. But there was difficulty, <coughs> uh, trouble with the DH-86. Uh, some people have said it suffered from directional instability. Um, did you feel that this was so? No. That was the... Uh, that uh, That... Opinion came from the fact, first of all, of Prendergast uh, crashing outside of Longreach, which 
all indications were that it was not directional instability at all. It, it, it was more probably due to uh, instability under certain uh, center of gravity arrangements. But then it was these two which disappeared and crashed between Melbourne and Tasmania. That was what was uh, brought up that idea. Uh, anyhow, the most exhaustive tests were carried out and the aircraft was eventually passed for service perfectly satisfactorily. And uh, well, that was that. We had no no problems from that angle, whatever, with the aircraft. I believe that uh, at one time you came across one of the favourite Australian birds in great numbers. Yes. The old bird that we're talking about is, is the galah, which is a grey parrot of which there are millions in Australia. It's particularly up in the Queensland area. However, I had come in from Camelwheel and Mount Isa one morning, and the air... Uh, the aerodrome had been recently regraded by the aerodrome uh, maintenance people. And I do recollect remembering, noticing when I came in, that there were a lot of galahs feeding on this uh, graded part. But we, as usual procedure, we went into the into Cloncurry to have scrambled eggs on toast and a cup of tea and what have you, and came back to continue on to Longreach. So, having put my four passengers on board, which was a full load, and the old 50 took a little bit of a, uh, a run. It wasn't very... Uh, in, in, by half past ten in the morning, with a bit of heat, it, it didn't. Uh, wasn't very exciting. It was a very gentle aircraft. However, having taxied to the far end of the of the aerodrome, I turned into wind and came down this graded area. When the wheels had got enough speed and was just off the ground, when a complete mass of galahs shot up in front of me. I, I, whether I weaved, I think I weaved a bit, but I just couldn't help it. I just went straight through the whole mob, and the noise was like a machine gun going off. Bang, 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 everywhere. And I really was prepared for the prop to fly to pieces and anything to happen. However, I managed, I did a gentle turn, circuit round, and came back and landed without any trouble. And uh, got back to the hangar and had a look at things, and we picked 52 beaks out of the propeller, um, all over the wings and the undercart. There was imprints of birds, blood and everything all over the place. So we were very lucky. We changed the propeller and put a new one on, sent the lorry out to scare all the birds away and eventually took off quite safely. But I think we uh, had a fair massacre of birds. <laughs> now, when the uh, DH-86 service was begun by Qantas and extended through to Singapore... What were the living conditions like for uh, passengers en route at your various stops? Our first uh, stop from Brisbane going north was Cloncurry, where there was a perfectly good hotel and everything was normal. 
From there we went on to Darwin for the next night. We had, uh, uh, there was no suitable hotel in Darwin, and we had uh, taken over the two houses which were which were originally uh, built for the managers of the, of the big vestes abattoir uh, thing that, that fell through on the coast. Well, there they were in, in, in reasonable comfort. We ran the place ourselves. The next stop going northbound was on Lombok Island, uh, where uh, the rest house which we used was some uh, a few miles away and up into the 600 feet up and up, up into the cool country. A very pleasant rest house where um, they had a very nice swimming pool. All the water came from the top of the mountain and uh, we used to take some beer up and just fling it into the pool. There was no need for any further cooling down. One day, on the coming uh, southbound from from Singapore, Fergus McMaster, Mr. Fergus McMaster, was one of my passengers. And so before dinner, we thought it was only right that he should have first bath. Well, now, in the islands in those days, there were no baths as we know them. It's what we call a throw bath. Now, what exactly is a throw bath? A throw bath is um, some container for water in the in, in that area. It's a concrete thing across a corner of the bathroom, making a a, a, a big thing about five feet deep and some three foot uh, radius, in which you can fill with water. And then you have a what you call the throw thing is a like a sauce a saucepan with a handle, especially made in which you stand outside the uh, outside of the uh, of the thing and throw water over over yourself through this hand bucket thing, soap yourself all over, and then hand get the water out with the with the sauce within again and and wash all the, wash all the water off. So it's a sort of a tank. Yes, it is really. Well, uh, Mr. Mr. McMaster was, I say, first in. We gave him first uh, go at it, but unfortunately, he had never seen a throw bath before, and was a bit uh, concerned with what to do. However, he thought there was only one thing to do. He had to get into the bath, so he got right in and had a thorough good wash and soap in in, in the big um, water container, and that was that. But it was an awful long time that there was no more baths for us. We discovered eventually that that was the cause. He had got right into it. And so we had to wait then until the prisoners had been fetched from the jail to empty that lot of water out and refill it again for us, um, which was quite amusing. Did he realize that um, he'd uh, taken the wrong way? I don't think so. We certainly didn't tell him. <laughs> no, I don't, I, he may have found out later on because he went through there several times afterwards. What sort of food did you get at these stops? Well, it, it, it was uh, very good, solid food. Um, it had some meat, probably goat, I don't know. But um, 
it, it, it was very pleasant uh, meals. We had no uh, no trouble about it, whatever. Meat and veg, and that was that. Were you doing any night landings on this route at the time? <clears throat> Not at that time, no. No, we didn't do night landings. We oh, we did coming back into Darwin. Certainly on on the southbound route. It, it, it would, we'd get there at dusk or just afterwards, and we, we off night landed at Darwin, and then regularly, far as we, the next day's flight was from Darwin to Longreach, which was quite a long way, and that was always a night landing, sometimes at Concurry beforehand, but uh, it was a regular night landing at Longreach, occasionally at Concurry, and at Darwin. And what sort of arrangements were made for you to land at night? The ground staff put out the standard flare path with uh, of uh, oil rags in tins or some something similar in the shape of an L, the, uh, which was a standard thing ever since World War One. The top of the L was what you landed up to. Uh, you approached alongside the uh, the long side of the L up towards the the. End, which was the one that, which was the right angled end, perfectly satisfactory. Yeah. Has been used, probably still is being used in some places. <laughs>